Hello, and welcome back to Grace Maryville Weekly. I hope that you have been blessed by the teaching of God's Word that we started on Monday from Psalm 90, where we are reminded that we should number our days. We are providing these messages in bite-sized format to provide strength and encouragement throughout the week. It would be our hope that by doing so, you will be able to listen to the truths of God's Word unfold at a pace that accommodates our ever-evolving schedules. We firmly believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So if you will, take your copy of the Scriptures and turn to Psalm 90 as Pastor Chris completes this message. God will eternally judge all men who do not repent of sin. We see this in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Speaking of those in the end of time, who then turn away from God to literally worship Satan, but really just simply making clear the very thing which men are doing if they do not worship God at any time. They are worshiping the evil one. They are blinded by him and they are following after him. And this will be their punishment, as will be the punishment of all who turn away from the worship of the holy God. And that is the state into which we come into the world. It says this, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. You see, God is not ashamed of this punishment. He's not delight in having men go unto eternal hell and being the one who ultimately condemns them there. And yet he is not ashamed of it for it is the proper and right reflection of his holy character to judge sin. When it says that men will be consumed by the anger of God and by the wrath of God, please understand that this will be the fate of every man who does not trust Jesus, who does not properly respond to God by repenting of sin and putting faith and trust in the one that God sent to provide that salvation. Just as inevitably every man over the age of 20 died in the wilderness because God said that would happen as a result of their specific sin of refusing to trust him to enter the land, so it is that every man in the world, every man and woman, will go unto eternal hell because of the sin that taints their hearts if they do not repent and believe. James Boyce says, not only has Moses set the weakness of man and the shortness of his life against the grandeur and eternity of God, he's also traced man's mortality to its roots, seeing death as a judgment for sin. We might think that he would contrast man's sin with God's holiness, just as he has contrasted man's mortality with God's eternity. Instead, he is trying to show that death is linked to sin and caused by it. We die because Adam sinned and because we also sin ourselves. Now, it may be that you sit watching this live stream this morning thinking, well, okay, God's wrath against sin is consuming, but I'm not going to be consumed in that wrath because either God doesn't know my sin or I'm not actually sinful. Well, look down at the next verse in your text. Verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There is no one who will escape the judgment of God for their sin. And there is no one who does not have these secret sins, as it were, the sins of heart and mind. 
It may be that you feel that you are somehow externally accomplishing the will of God, that no one could come with a, an argument or a, 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 some kind of accusation against you ex- externally, much like the Pharisees. You say, we haven't committed adultery. We haven't murdered anyone. We don't steal from people. We keep the Sabbath, all the things, and yet their hearts were bound up with sin. In their hearts, they lusted. In their hearts, they hated, and therefore, God says that that was the same, or the eternal consequence is the same as murder. There is no man who will be acquitted on the day of judgment. Every man in his heart has sinned against a holy God because his heart is tainted with evil. Every iniquity will have a just response from a holy God, and no one will escape from the condemnation of sin if those sins have not been placed upon Christ. God's judgment is not ignorant or capricious. His judgment is made more terrifying by the fact that it is not accidental or casual. He's placed our sins before him. He's purposely brought them. It's not as though he's you know, doing other things and he's distracted in other ways with the world. He's trying to run, oh, I see some sin here. No, he, because he is a just and holy judge, he takes the sin. He brings it into his contemplation, as it were. He sets it before him. He looks at the books to see every man's word, every man's deeds, every man's motives, every man's actions, and he judges them according to absolute purity. Holiness is the only standard, and God actually and purposely brings these things before the sight, as it were, of his righteous judgment. Our fugitive sins fleeing from the light have been rounded up and brought into the courtroom of the judge of all the earth. This means that God cares about our sin. He purposely seeks it out. He's not passive about our iniquities. And only when things get really bad does he rouse himself to deal with it. He is always scrutinizing our hearts and lives to see where we stand before him. Psalm 10 verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. This is the evil man. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. See, this is what society is saying today. God has hidden his face. He won't see the evil of my sin. Perhaps this virus, perhaps the the death that is now slapping people in the face in so many ways will cause them to realize that God's eyes are not blind to the sin of men, the sin of mankind in general, that God knows he is aware. And his temporal judgments come upon sin, but they only give a picture of the eternal judgment, which is inevitably on the way. Psalm 50, verse 21. These things you have done and I kept silent. This is God speaking to men as he considers their sin. You thought I was just like you. See, we overlook sin. We forget about sin. We don't think sin is a big deal. We try to set sin aside. Certainly the world has done that. We've changed our entire, the entire structure of our system of law so that it accommodates sin. And we think that God has not seen. We think that God does not know. We think that somehow we can get away with this and God will simply look upon it and say, all is fine, that has my blessing. He says, you thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and I will state the case in order before your eyes. No man gets away with twisting the justice of God and somehow thinking that God will not bring upon him the righteous judgment that he deserves. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. And God's judgment on sin is devastating. So in our outline here, we see that God's wrath, he's the sovereign judge of sin. His wrath against sin is consuming. His awareness of sin is complete. His judgment on sin is devastating. He goes on again to say, to to give a, an illustration of this fact by the fleeting nature of man's life. 
He says, our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow for soon it is gone and we fly away. Man, again, has demonstrated that his life is finite, that it is fleeting in comparison to an eternal and holy God. He says, our, 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 our lives or the years of our life contain maybe 70 years, maybe 80. It's fascinating. Written by Moses in 1460 BC. And essentially, we don't live any longer than we did back then. We don't get to live like they did uh, before the flood for thousands of years or for, for hundreds of years. We live, and it has been the case since the time of the flood, that our lives are 70, 80 years. You might think, well, Moses lived to be 120. That was a unique circumstance. Several men in Scripture have lived longer. But in general, even today, with all of our medicine, with all of our advances, we don't live any further. And we will not live further. The best that we can do is extend life in kind of a weak way where we extend life with sickness and disease and, and with health problems. We kind of extend it towards 100 if we could possibly get there. And yet we still die like a sigh like ammonia, it's, it's the, the scriptural picture is like uh, a man who's been diseased and harmed and he's sick and he finally gives up with kind of a moan coming out of his mouth as he expires unto death. If you've seen death, you know that this is often the case. And this is how men ends. Their pride is but labor and sorrow and soon they are gone and we fly away. Even the best of our lives is full of labor, full of sorrow, full of difficulty. No man goes through life without experiencing those things. And this should humble us. And he finishes this section in verse 11 by saying God's anger against sin is awful and spelled that A-W-E-F-U-L. It is full of awe. Notice what he says. This is important as he ends this section. Who understands, verse 11, the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you. Here's the issue. We look at God's wrath and anger against sin. We say, that's not fair. That's not right. God's a grumpy, angry God who's just like us, who is capricious and just, he's just mad. No, he's righteously angry. And because we don't understand his holiness and his righteousness, so we do not understand his judgment. Because we do not consider our sin in nature to God's holiness, we therefore think that he somehow is unfair. If we could just grasp for a moment what scripture says about the holiness of God, and then see our sin in light of his perfection, then we would not wonder at the wrath of God. We would only wonder why we are still alive now. And that's what he says. Who understands the power of your anger? You don't. Or his fury? You can't. Until or unless you have a true fear of the Lord, which God himself provides. We're bothered by God's wrath against sin because we don't take our own sin or God's holiness seriously. The measure of our true reverence for God determines the degree to which we learn to grasp what God's wrath truly is. And so that's the bad news. Well, it's good news and bad news. God is eternal. He's the dwelling place. He's the one into whom, to whom we can run and find our refuge. But in our sin, we don't. And all who don't run to God are judged in their sin without exception. So what do we do? We cry out to God. That's the rest of our psalm. And that's what Moses points us to do. He's laid out God's character. He's laid out God's eternal holiness and our desperate sinfulness. Now he points us to God's infinite provision and our desperate need. And so he begins to make these provisions, really seven of them. In verse 12, I believe verse 12 finishes the section, but it starts, it really transitions to the next section by crying out to ask for God's help as a result of his anger against our sin and our just judgment and punishment, the finiteness of our lives. He says this, so teach us to number our days 
that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Our lives are fleeting. They are short. At the very best, they are full of trouble and sorrow. So we need to think carefully about how long we have to live and then seek to live wisely. That is with a true fear of the Lord in light of his holiness, in light of our sinfulness and respond to him properly, running to him for salvation and then living for him every one of the short days that he leaves for us on the earth. You may not be affected by this coronavirus at all. You might not even cough, but death is coming for you and it is coming quickly. Live your life wisely. And the only way to live life wisely is to fear the Lord, bending the knee to him in repentance and faith, and then living out your life by faith in him to his glory. That's God's wisdom. We are in desperate need of it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Scripture provides for us the way of wisdom. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and we desperately need them. If you recognize your sin and the state that you are in and the fleeting nature of your life, you have, there's, one, there's only one wise thing to do. Run to God who lives forever. Run to the one in whom you can find your safety and security forever. Anything else would be utter foolishness. And so Moses cries out that the Lord would provide that heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. And perhaps during this coronavirus, you have spent before this time, you were spending a lot of time just simply pursuing your own desires. Even as a believer, perhaps. As an unbeliever, you were consumed with those things. But pursuing your own desires, pursuing your career, tacking Christianity on the back end of your children's education and your family's health. Yes, God mattered to you, but somehow all these other things seem to have come in the way, seem to be more important. But you take this time now to consider your days, to have a heart of wisdom, to number them, to consider, I don't have many more left. That's the idea. You number your days and you, and you think, I don't have any more left. So I need to use those wisely so that God will be honored and pleased. We must live in light of our own mortality, making the most of the few days we have, not shortening them by pursuing sin that brings God's wrath and not wasting them by living for something other than God himself. We want to live each day for our Lord. James Boyce says we cannot apply our hearts unto wisdom as instructed by Moses, except we number every day as possibly the last day of our lives, the last time we will be able to give glory and honor to a holy God. That's how we need to live. That includes our joy. It includes times in the mountains and time spent with family. It includes good meals and joyful fellowship. But all of that in light of the coming accountability to a holy God, in which we long to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Make every day count for the glory of God. Ephesians 5, verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Dive into his word. Live according to those principles in all of your activities, eating, drinking, loving, in every way, we number our days and with wisdom, we live according to the principles of the word of God. And then we use this fleeting life wisely. We sing the song, only one life will, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's true. That's what this Psalm says. And we need to live every day in light of this. And again, let this virus, let this global pandemic, let this crisis force you to deal with how you have been living out your days and then to adjust and fine tune your life in such a way that you are living moment by moment for Christ, that you are numbering your days 
properly. So we are in need of God's wisdom. That's the first thing that we cry out for. The second thing that the psalmist, that Moses points us to cry out for is God's pity. Notice here, he doesn't cry out, Lord, give to us what we deserve. We're so worthy and so powerful and so wonderful. Just provide us those, all those things that we should have had all along. He says nothing of the sort. Verse 13, do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. God, have pity on us. We are only experiencing what we deserve. The results of a sinful world, our sinful hearts and our tainted nature. So don't give us what we deserve. Please have pity on us. Grant us your grace. Do return. Ron read Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Well, we long that he would return, as it were, that his presence would be upon us in mercy and in pity, that he would see our pitiable state and that he would come to us. And God is faithful to do this. He answers this request of ours. Psalm 6, 4, return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. Deuteronomy 32, 36, again, written by the same Moses who wrote this Psalm. For the Lord will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Just admit it. Instead of in your arrogance somehow thinking that you can draw the pity or the, or the work of God because of what you have done, instead say, there's nothing I could do. Simply have pity upon me, have sorrow upon my sinful state. And in that humble state, God does. And he, he lifts you up, he exalts you. Third thing that we cry out for along with Moses or that Moses calls upon us to cry out for is verse 14, God's steadfast love. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. This loving kindness, this has said, the best translation of that being the steadfast love of God, not the reckless love of God, not the foolish love of God, not the unthinking love of God, not simply the spur of the moment love of God, not the emotional love of God, but the steadfast love, the carefully thought through delight in the people that he has created to draw them into right relationship with himself so that they might live with him for eternity. That's the love of God. The covenant love which says, I will keep you, I will care for you, I will provide for you, I will bring you to me, and I will do whatever it takes that you would look like me, that you would glorify me, and that you would live in my presence forever. I'll do whatever it takes. That is the steadfast love of God, and he will never leave you. It's carefully planned, it's carefully directed, yet it is infinite, it is emotional, it is full of affection. That is the only thing that brings us joy, to know that we are loved by a holy God. Not, not that we've loved him, not that we're loved by other people. The only thing that can truly bring us joy is to know that we are loved by a holy God. Augustine said this, you made us for yourself. Our hearts find no peace until they find rest in you. Until we know we are loved by you, we will always be empty. No other love will accomplish that. Not the love of your spouse, not the love of your children, not the love of your friends that they would provide for you. We need to know, understand, and respond to the love of God. Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 63, 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life. It is better than life. You could lose your life. But if you have taken hold of the love of God for you, then you will have that life eternally. To truly know, believe, and trust the love of God is to repent of sin and trust in Christ. That's what happens. That's what a belief in the love of God for you will bring. Psalm 23, 6, 
Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me. Not, not follow behind me, but relentlessly pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Every day of my life, the loving kindness of God comes for me, and then in eternity, I experience the fullest of the blessings of that loving kindness. The love of God has been extended to us in Christ. Do you believe it? If you do, you will turn to him in repentance and faith. If you do not, you will walk away seeking after the love of other things. 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we need God's wisdom. We need God's pity. We need God's loving kindness. We need God's gladness. Verse 15, make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil crying out to the Lord, Lord, we've seen the evil, we've seen the difficulty. Might in you, I think that's the, the picture, as we turn to you, as we love you, as we seek after you, might we find gladness the rest of our time. Overcome, overtake, overturn the difficulty of our days in gladness in you now as we are pursuing you. And every day for the righteous is glad. Every day for the one seeking the holiness of God and the power of God, according to the principles of the word of God, every day is a day of rejoicing. What does Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But that's God's gladness, not yours. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, this coronavirus is great. This, this pandemic is wonderful. I'm a stoic. I'll just make it through. That's not gladness. We find gladness in God alone. It is his gladness transferred and flowing through our hearts because we are in right relationship with him. And we pray this. The, the days of difficulty that we have seen, we ask God that you would make us glad. He, number five, asks for God's, to see God's majesty. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. He says, God, we want to see your work. Just as it was seen as the children of Israel came out of Egypt with the mighty wonders that you have done, might now, Moses says, might we now see your work? Might we re recognize the nature of your powerful work on our behalf? Look around you. That's what you need to see, that God is at work his salvation for you, his provision for you, his, all of the eternal blessings he's given you in Christ. You need to recognize those. You need to see those as his work and then you see his majesty. And we pray that that majesty is not just revealed to us, but in an ongoing way through the people of God, it's then revealed to the generations that follow. And that happens as we follow God. And then as we, in, in, in a New Testament sense, build the church so that the next generations can see and proclaim the majesty of God. In verse 17, at the beginning, he says, we need God, we need your favor. We need your favor. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. That is his unmerited favor, his grace. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of God and to meditate in his temple. And then the last thing he asked for as we close out our discussion of this psalm, the final thing, and and something to care, for us to carefully consider at the end. He asks for God's confirmation. He repeats this phrase twice. Confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm for us the work of our hands. What does this mean? Now Moses desired for his people, and this seems to be predicated on a renewed commitment to him and a desire to serve and honor him now. He desired that his people who have been humbled by God's judgment would now see God exalt them with his favor so that instead of futility, their work would be turned to effective service. Everything in the wilderness was, it was futility, the things that they were doing. But now he says, as we enter into the land, as we now have this new opportunity, let our barrenness be turned to fruitfulness. 
Let our death be turned, as it were, to life. And this is our prayer as well. Apart from God, nothing we do is worthwhile. Everything is empty. Everything will vanish. Everything will fade. But in the Lord, as we serve him, we would ask that he would make our work valuable. We want to honor him in this way. We want to have the body of good works that he's given for us to do. We want those to effectively give testimony to his name. And this in New Testament terms is what we ask for when we call out to God to save his people, is to confirm the work of his hands, uh, work of our hands, to cause them to see their sin in light of God's holy character, to see their finiteness in light of God's infinity, to recognize the futility of their own sinful efforts, to humble themselves in the sight of God by repenting of sin and proclaiming the worthiness and glory of Christ by trusting in his, person's work, in his person and work. Every person's life work is complete futility unless they have turned to the Lord through Christ. And he then brings the blessing of his favor and the conformation of their work, that is, using their work to accomplish eternal tasks, even for the believer. The effectiveness of our lives is only in relation to the extent to which we fear the Lord, putting away sin and putting on Christ. We don't want to simply wait for eternity. We long for our lives here to be of worth and value. And this is true only to the extent that we live wisely by fearing God through loving obedience in pursuit of his glory through Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So as we end here, my question, will you recognize your need for an eternal dwelling and not find this earth, this world as your dwelling place? Will you acknowledge and respond to God's sovereignty over life and death and turn to him for life? Will you agree and submit to God's righteous judgment of sin, running from the wrath to come and fleeing to the safe haven that is the person and work of Christ? Will you cry out to God then daily for his necessary provision of wisdom to live your days wisely, to number them? His pity that he would simply pour out on you his blessings that you don't deserve. His steadfast love that he would comfort, strengthen, and encourage you by his loving presence his gladness that he would cause you to rejoice, his majesty that you would see his work, his favor that he would grant you his grace, and his confirmation that your work would please and honor him. Don't let your mortal spirit be proud. Instead, in humility, turn to the one who can confirm your work and number your days in wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this powerful psalm, which reveals to us not only our sinfulness, but also your great holiness and not only our desperate need, but also your powerful provision. And I pray that we as a congregation during this time would number our days well, according to wisdom, according to the principles of your word, that we would then have a renewed vigor, a renewed desire to live our lives out the rest of the short days that you've given us upon this earth, that we would live them out in honor to you, in glory to your name and in seeing that your people are one to you. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that's gracemaryville.org. 
There not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace Community Church, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages, not only presented by Presta Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, our youth ministry, and our college-age ministry. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again on Monday when we will begin another series of messages from God's Word.